0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Amen. Thanks, Beth, and good morning, everyone. And good morning to you who will be joining us a little bit later online, virtually, physically. We're glad all of you are here. And again, if you got your Bible this morning, physically or virtually, I'd love you to turn to the book of Philippians. We're in week three in this series where we're talking about how joy and suffering are intermingled as we walk through our Christian life together. And we're going to start hanging out probably in around Verse 27. I was driving my wife's minivan this week, and as I was driving, I wasn't paying much attention to uh, life. I was just sort of doing the deal, and I looked up, and suddenly on the dashboard, uh, three or four lights were flashing at me. Have you ever had that experience before? I have no clue, by the way, what most of those lights mean. Do you know? I don't know. Uh, there was one that was a triangle with an exclamation. I said, um, okay. There was one I knew that had to do with sort of windshield. W- okay, I got that one. The other one, I think, is some version between Chinese and Arabic, and it, but it's It's a Japanese car. I was totally confused. And anyway, it's interesting my reaction, and maybe this has been yours. Number one, uh, I went, well, I don't know what that is. But my immediate reaction was this. I wonder how far I can keep driving without there being a problem. (laughs) Right? Is this not what we do? Even when I've had an engine light on before, I'm like, "Mm, I'm not sure. I think I can keep going. And as I was thinking about my natural reaction to the dashboard, it struck me. Much of the time when warnings come to ourselves or to communities, our natural reaction is, well, I wonder if I can sort of keep going and and see how far I can go without there being any damage. And what's so interesting about that is that this passage at this moment in our church's history is significant. What I'm about to read and preach on this morning, I believe, as I prayed this week and struggled and spoke to others, I think this is a, a dashboard warning for us. And here it is. Scripture is absolutely clear that if a human being who knows Jesus or a local church that loves Jesus makes the determination in their hearts to begin to sincerely start reaching out to people, sincerely begin to take the, ma- the mandate of Christ seriously about reaching out to the world and introducing people to Christ, here's what the Bible tells us. There will be suffering and there will be resistance. If this church continues to pray for personal renewal, a genuine corporate, non-invented revival, if we continue to pray for an awakening to sweep through the Durham and GTA uh, region, if we continue to hold out the gospel, Scripture is clear. There will be strife. Internally, there will be strife. Some of you will resist this. Outside, there will be strife because people do not want the love of God. And then within the heavenly, Scripture is unbelievably clear. The kingdom of darkness will do everything it can to shut down a church that wants to obey what Jesus has commanded. The warning lights are about to go on in Philippians chapter 1. Paul has been talking as we've been going through this, and he's now concluding his experiences on living in prison as a Christian Christian. And now he begins to pen this part of this letter to this local church on how they should act and relate in everyday life with suffering too. And really, he's about to talk about one thing, and here's the dashboard for us. He wants to talk about unity. Unity in the face of opposition that is coming. Unity in face of opposition that's already happening. Unity within church life. And why all of this? Simple. Paul knew that joy will be stolen from your life or a church's life. When unity is damaged or lost. He knows that when suffering comes, our joy will get tested. And again, as we're going to see in this passage, he roots his call and interesting, his command for unity and joy in one person, Jesus. Jesus, he would say, suffered even though he obeyed and he lived under the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are called to look and live like Jesus. So this is how the story continues. We find out that Paul is not the only one being attacked for stepping up and being a Christian. The church he's writing to in Philippi is also now under attack, and so Paul starts this part of his letter for the need for church unity as a church, just like Paul was experiencing himself, was going to and was facing opposition. They were facing opposition from those who did not know Jesus, did not understand Jesus, did not love Jesus, actually some of them hated Jesus, and the list goes on. Unity gets tested, and it's tough to hold on to when there's real, serious persecution and opposition. Paul is saying, in light of what I've just shared with you, as you wait for, for me to come, if I can come, I'm going to charge you as a local church to live this way. You have seen how I have lived with outside opposition and also how I have dealt with brothers and sisters who violate internal unity. Now you need to do the same thing. Philippians 1.27 reads like this. Whatever happens, he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, Christian, good, great, bad, terrible, whatever you face, tribulation by friends, family, the government, other religious groups, whether it's just or unjust, you not have an option. You must conduct yourself. You must live out your citizenship in a way that Jesus would be pleased with. Now, I didn't know this this week, but as I was doing prep, I realized that he was doing a word play here. See, the word conduct yourself in Greek actually is the word "citizen." or passport. One reflected it this way. Paul is making a reflection on their dual citizenship. Now, let me bring this home. He says, they are by virtue of being Philippians, people of the empire, but they also are people of heaven by virtue of being in Jesus and incorporated into the church. Now, on one hand, now this is important for context. This city boasted of its privileged status of being a Roman colony, Philippi became a Roman colony after Octavian, that's Augustus, the great emperor many of us know about, had a decisive victory on the plains of Philippi. Its people then had Roman citizenship conferred on them, a matter in which they took considerable pride. See, I think when we look at history, we think the whole Roman empire, everyone actually had citizenship. They didn't. Most people didn't. But this whole city got this amazing privilege of citizenship. So Christians are living in a very strong pro-Roman world where the emperor at that time was not just loved, he actually was worshipped ready as the son of God and the prince of peace. Ever heard those titles before? And Paul says, you are called to live not just as citizens of Rome, and that's important, but actually you're called to live as citizens of heaven in the middle of that. Live in this Roman colony, one wrote, as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland, Now, notice something else this morning since we're talking about joy. Paul says, you do this. Others are not responsible for our joy. Our happiness, our Christian walk, we're responsible. As Chuck Swindoll rightly wrote, maturity is accelerated when we learn to stand firm on our own. There is occasion, of course, where others play helpful roles roles during needed episodes of our lives. But that should be the exception, not always the rule. And then here's the phrase that caught me. Ready? Ready? Twitter people, you can do this. Codependent people are not joyful people. Codependent people are not joyful people. Paul comes and says to his church, we must live as Christians, as people whose identity is rooted in Jesus, not others, in Jesus first. And our citizenship is rooted in a coming new heavens and new earth. Now listen, we all live in Canada and we love our country. I hope you do, you should. We have a great country. We're proud of being Canadians. We have a great reputation globally compared to most of the world. Our passports are a good thing. As a person who's traveled, I get this. But we also need to understand sitting here this morning that our passports in the fullest sense are in the unseen. They're in the kingdom of God. And since we know as C4 Church that the kingdom of God is not the local church, it's not the state of Israel, nor is it any piece of land you can buy, but it's any place in the human heart where reign and rule of God is welcome, accepted, and acted upon, Paul's words make so much sense. He says, Live your life, conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Since you have embraced the gospel, he wrote, and you know that God is both holy and he is love, let's now begin to see that gospel work itself out in everyday life. Live according to the gospel rather than the Roman way of life. Then he says, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one Holy Spirit Striving together as for one and standing uh, and, and for one and standing in the faith, faith in the, of the gospel. He says, here's the three things everyone needs to get if you want to deal with unity when you're under attack. Number one, stand strong in the Holy Spirit. Don't forget that you actually are related. You are one body. And do not give in to fear and do not give in to darkness. Now that's where we need to begin today if we're going to talk about unity. He begins the conversation about unity with the Holy Spirit. He says, stand firm in one spirit. Our common unity here at C4 Church, our common experience, interestingly enough, is the Holy Spirit. He is the basis for our unity in this church. He is the source of our unity. Why? Because he's the one who binds us all together. He's the one who introduced us to Jesus. He's the one who makes us like Jesus. That's why we're baptized in the spirit, and then we're baptized in water. As one wrote, only by standing firm in the one and holy spirit, that is the spirit of Christ Jesus, can they and we hope to contend as one church and give the good news of Jesus no matter the opposition that we face. He says in verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that is by God. The opposition, Paul writes, may be overwhelming, powerful, formidable, but do not give in to their intimidation. Why? Here it is. God is God. He is the author of history. Every person at the end of time will kneel and give account to one person, whether they like him or believe in his existence or not, and his name is Jesus. When it comes down to the wire, Paul would say, Jesus must be loved, obeyed, and honored over anything and anyone else. And one gives us great insight about the suffering of this local church. Because if you read Philippians, it's hard to catch what was going on. Because basically, Paul and the Philippians knew what was going on, so they only refer to it. So I was wondering this week, I wonder what type of suffering they were really going through as a local church. I came across this passage, and it helped me. The person wrote, in light of uh, several hints within the letter, especially with the emphasis of Jesus being Lord and Savior and the loyalty of this colony to the cult of the empire, it now makes sense. See, very likely, the Roman citizens of Philippi, who would have had that honor for the emperor at every public gathering, were now putting special pressure on these Christians. Their allegiance, think about this, had been given to another lord, Another emperor, Jesus, who himself had been executed at the hands of the empire. And in the present context, in which Paul asserts that they're going under, under the same struggle he was, don't forget, he's a prisoner of the empire. This gives us good understanding. So you say, well, bring it into the 21st century. Okay, here it is. Every time you go to your gym, well, if some of you do, okay, Every time you go to the YMC, every time you go to the Santa Claus Parade, every time you go to your dance class with your grandkids, every time you do anything that's a public event in Ajax, Whitbury, Brooklyn, Scarborough, wherever you live, at the beginning of every one of those events, imagine if you had to burn incense to Stephen Harper. Now you're like, ha, ha, ha. No, but really, that you actually had to publicly say, Stephen Harper is Lord. Some of you are going, I'm not conservative. Fine, breathe, okay. (laughs) Nor, by the way, did I wear this on purpose. Okay, no. No, I really didn't. No, seriously. In that context, he was worshipped. The emperor was worshipped as God. And you've done it your whole life. And you love this emperor because he gave you status your friends never had in other cities. And suddenly you go, well, I've met Jesus. I can't do that. Excuse me? Don't you care? Don't you know how, how much privilege... You know he's God, right? No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he is not. Trouble. See, we're Canadians. We get to hide. We get to do everything, you know, away. But imagine if it was public and you had to make a choice in front of your friends, in front of people in your mom's group, in front of people that think it's just normal to do this. Why are you being so unnormal, so unreasonable? Well, Jesus is Lord. And now Christians had to face something they never thought they would have to. And so now we get to the understanding that this struggle is serious. That's why Paul would write for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He basically says to a local church, if you hold the future secure, if you hold that the new heavens and new earth are real, if you hold that eternal life is real, if you know that Jesus is Lord and the author of history, and the emperor is not the emperor, don't fear The people around could never understand this Christian confidence because they believed in fate, not a personal God that would personally care and personally was involved and personally working out in, through, and over history. It was the grand reformer Luther in his day who cried out, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Our future, Paul would write, is certain. It's firm. It's established. Don't waver. Without being frightened, he said, by those who oppose you, This will be a sign to them, an omen to them, that they will be destroyed. When they attack you as a Christian, he would write, they attack Jesus. When they attack you, they attack God himself, the creator, the one they're going to have to face, the one that knows all and sees all, every motive that leads to every action he knows. He would say, dear brothers, dear sisters, dear friends, this is part of walking with Jesus. Now, verse 29 is the one that bothered me all week long. Because this is the one that I have not heard preached in North America for a very long time and made me unbelievably uncomfortable. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Let me read it again. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only Christian, to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for Jesus. He says salvation is granted. It is God's will that we are saved. It is God that called you. It is Jesus that will sustain you. It is Jesus that will meet you when you die. God before the beginning of time elected you to faith. When Jesus cried out it is finished, he did it for you. When you saw it finally saw your need for a savior and you saw the ugliness of your sin, that was God's merciful work in your life. When you finally said yes to Jesus as savior and lord, the spirit of Christ Jesus filled you. You were saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. You have nothing to do with your salvation. It's grace alone, faith alone, and Jesus alone, for God's glory alone, so the world sees Jesus through us. Salvation, he says, has been granted to you. Salvation is graciously given, and this is when the church, oh, mm, the holy ground, Mm, amen, right? Everyone loves this, and it's true. We should. You should say amen. This is unbelievable. Say amen. This is good, but there's this huge, oh, my goodness moment, only salvation. No, it's more Though salvation is an amazing gift, so is the gift of suffering for Jesus. Now, this is not saying suffering in all ways and places. Because a lot of people have read this verse and misunderstood it. This is not saying you have a terminal illness because you're suffering for Jesus. This is not saying you lost your job because you're suffering for Jesus, per se. This is talking about suffering for Jesus and his truth. This is suffering by the words and deeds of others because of Jesus. Jesus. When your family and your friends and your co-workers and strangers and enemies attack you because you love Jesus. For holding out the truth about him. For saying in a world that says that every road goes to heaven. That we declare, no, there is only one way, one truth, and one life. Jesus is the only path to heaven. Salvation is found in him and him alone. It's saying in a world where people say we are a mistake. No, we are not a mistake. There is a creator who loves us. It's saying in a world that says there is no such thing as absolute truth. No, there is an absolute truth and his name is Jesus. It's saying in a world that says, well, if it doesn't hurt me, I can do anything sexually. No, there is a great lawgiver who loves you so much he forbids you from doing certain things. It is saying to a world that lifts up our own stuff so much more and says the unborn don't matter. No, life is precious because we're made in the image of God. That is what happens. And suddenly Paul says, you must stand in a world that is not just sort of blind, but hostile to God, hostile to Jesus, hostile because they do not want the love of God. He says, stand, stand and suffer. I love how Eugene Peterson got this. There's far more to this life than trusting in Christ. There's also suffering for him. Here's the phrase. And the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. When's the last time churches claimed that as their motto? And suffering is as much a gift as a trusting. I'm not saying we're jerks about this. I'm not saying we should not have the right attitude. I'm not saying we should not be humble. But understand this. When you truly begin to stand for the truth of Christ and his gospel, and the implications of the gospel, you will suffer. And Paul would tell you, yes, and that is the will of our Father for you. When we suffer, we know we are owned by Jesus. When we suffer, we come close to Jesus because we finally relate to his cross experience. When we suffer, we begin to give up what we value because we know God's work is greater than what we want. Paul says, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, now hear that I still have. Paul begins to tell them, that if they truly begin to preach the gospel and live out a life conformed to the kingdom of God, they will not only be called unique, weird, disconnected, they will be called terrible, terrible things. And trust me, friends, I don't care our history as Canada. The truth is it is getting darker and it is going to get much more difficult for us to say Jesus is Lord. It's going to be difficult. So then Paul says these words. Now, all that's going on, and I've talked about the outside. Now, let me get to the heart of this. Let's talk about how you treat each other inside when the pressure shows up. See, Paul moves from opposition and its possible effects on our unity, now for internal unity as the pressure heats up. Like I said at the beginning, the more worry, the more stress, the more fear, the more darkness on our dashboard, the easier to give in and see our unity broken. When we're really going to get squeezed our true colors are gonna show, right? Paul says, taking into account everything I've told you so far, God's grace for you, his coming victory at Jesus' return, the security of your salvation, you don't need to worry, my struggles, your struggles, my example, others' examples, here's what I want you to do. Chapter two, verse one. Therefore, everyone online, turn your Bible there too. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, If you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, this is rhetorical, by the way. He's presuming this. He says, while you're suffering, if you have any comfort from Jesus and his joy, if you are encouraged and have any comfort because he loved you first, because you're no longer a child of darkness, but you have eternal life, because you get to suffer for him, verse two, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love being in the one spirit and of one mind. Notice this is the other place that he talks about joy. As we learned already, Paul got great joy and allowed him to even go beyond disunity when the gospel was preached. But now this is the other side of the coin. This is the gravity one wrote for his joy. He says local church needs to be rooted in three things. We need to be like-minded, share in the same love, and be of one spirit and one mind. So here's the deal. If you're a Christian here and this is your church, listen. Listen. We all serve the same Jesus, and we have the same message. So guess what? We're like-minded. There's a level foot at the cross. We sang about that. So we actually share in the same love. But again, Paul drives this home. He says we have must have one spirit and one mind. Paul drives us back again to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he knows that it's the Holy Spirit that is the only one that gives us the fruit of the Spirit, which actually allows us to like each other every once in a while. Paul says, listen everyone, get along with each other. Why? Because you cannot afford a civil war when you're under attack. You cannot afford a civil war when you're under attack. It was the famous preacher Ironside from the last well two generations ago that preached. It's very evident to me that Christians will never see eye to eye on everything. Amen. We're so largely influenced by our habits, our environment, our education, the measure of intellectual and spiritual apprehension to which we've obtained that it's impossible to find a number of people that look at everything from the same standpoint. So how then can you be of one mind, he preached? Well, the apostle says it somewhere else. He says, "'I have the mind of Christ.'" The mind of Christ is a lowly thing, and if we all choose to have this mind, we shall walk together in love, considering one another, seeking rather to be helpers of one another's faith than challenging each other's convictions all the time. So here's the question, C4. What does harmony look like? I mean, how is it accomplished? I mean, it's hard enough to do it in a church of 80. How do you do it in a church of 1,500 plus a whole virtual deal that we're just learning about? How do we grow more and more in unity as we want to reach 10,000? Well, the answer is simply given. There's no strategy. There's no program. There's no path. It's this. Here it is. This is the, oh, I can't believe you put this in Scripture God moment. Do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I could just walk off the stage now, right? do nothing out of selfish ambition, do nothing out of vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value other people over yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to each, but each of you to the interests of others. Not do something, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I said to myself, I wonder what some great examples are. Some person wrote them. When a husband is unselfish, he subjugates his own wants and desires to the needs of his wife and his family. When a mother is unselfish, she isn't irked, this isn't 24-7, saying she's not irked by having to give up her agenda sometimes for the sake of her children. When an athlete is unselfish, the team matters more than the person. When a Christian is unselfish, others mean more than self. Pride is given no place to operate. See, big or small, it's a useless debate between churches. The question is attitude. The question is attitude. Not looking to your own interests, but but each person looking to the interests of others. Never let conceit or selfishness be your motive in church, he says. Always regard one another more importantly. Never limit your attention to you, yourself, and your agenda. This, of course, is exactly the opposite of what all of us would do. What would happen at each ministry team meeting in this church? What would happen in each family gathering, in each connect group, in each congregational meeting, each feedback session, each ministry time where we just stopped for a moment individually, prayed this prayer and said, Jesus, show me how to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do you think the church would be different? It's history and philosophy, government and religion that best show us and summarize the opposite of what Jesus calls us to do. This is how one person penned all the other views of power. Greece said, be wise, know yourself. Rome would teach, be strong and discipline yourself. Religion always says, be good, just conform yourself. One form of philosophy, Epicureanism would say, be sensual, satisfy yourself. Education says, just be resourceful, expand yourself. Modern secular psychology says, be confident, you assert yourself. Materialism says be positive, just please yourself. Another form of philosophy, asceticism says be lowly, beat yourself up, suppress yourself. Humanism says be capable, believe in yourself. Pride says be superior, promote yourself. Jesus comes along and says just be unselfish, humble yourself. Be unselfish, humble yourself. spouse. This is what I wrote as I was typing my sermon. Oh, Spirit of Jesus Christ, help me. Help me, help me. Again, let's not invent what unity is not. Wrong understanding will lead to wrong expectations, which will lead to failure and disunity. One person said, Paul is not imagining that a local church is a group of automatons walking in lockstep with one another. Instead, he sees a group of individuals who, despite their vast differences, are willing to show love for one another by putting the well-being of others first. This will always mean speaking the truth and acting on truth and doing so, though, in love. It will also mean having the humility publicly to admit when we've spoken or acted wrong and to mend our ways. Can you hear your natural reaction if you have not tuned me out yet? I mean, this is what I would naturally probably say to Paul. Hmm. I mean, really respect you, Paul. I mean, great. Ooh, you've done a lot. Can I be honest with you? I mean, I think these are really good ideas. I mean, really good aspirational goals. Uh, I'm not sure I can do that. Or some of you would say, it's just too hard. Or some of you, if you were really honest, would say, God, I'm not interested. Or some of you actually say, I've tuned you out. What are you talking about right now? I'm on Facebook. And others of you would say, actually, John, let's be honest. Let's just forget the church stuff. This is impossible. Paul would come back to us and say, if you genuinely are a follower of Jesus and he's Lord and Savior, you have to do this. Why? Why? because our unity is based on the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Jesus is our master, and then he says, and this is what he's about to do, and Jesus lived this way, and we're supposed to look like him. So that's why Paul says in Philippians 2, 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped these five words are groundbreaking in history. Paul starts with Jesus before the manger, Christ in his pre-existence. He was the form, the very nature of God. This means Jesus was God. You can't have the nature of God and not be God. There's only one one person in the universe that shares the DNA or personhood of God. It's God. This is not saying Jesus was sort of like God, but not really. He's saying that Jesus of Nazareth, who was a 33-year-old Jewish guy 2,000 years ago who walked around, was the creator God in flesh. And then he turns around and says these words, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, this is key to understanding Jesus' experience of unity and submission. This is saying Jesus, though he was fully God, chose not to be selfish and hold on to the privileges that were his. He rejected the common and popular view of power, and he poured himself out to be humble and submissive. He didn't stop being God or become something else. He just didn't take advantage of it. Again, how Eugene Peterson captured this. Jesus had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. How did Jesus do this? Well, this ancient hymn, this was a worship song, is actually gives us the answer in verse 7, but he made himself nothing, Taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So God himself takes on flesh, the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas. He lives a perfect life. He dies a death we deserve. He overcomes the grave. And the point of Paul, beyond teaching us some of the best theology ever written in history, is this. Jesus was marked by meekness. Jesus was marked by humility, and he didn't even have to be that. Verse 9, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, and at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Now notice, you have the full picture of Jesus here in his preexistence, his incarnation, his death on his cross, his ascension to heaven, his forever exaltation, and his intercession. Only when you see Jesus from above does the below make sense. And then Paul comes back to a local church made up of people just like us and says, by the way, you're supposed to imitate that. There's joy, he says, in meekness. There's power in humility. There is freedom in servanthood. Now at the end of writing this again, I looked at my life, I looked at this church, and I said, God, seriously, how? Like, really, it's easily preached, but how? And I was driven back to one place, one place, the Holy Spirit. So you're saying, well, what are you saying today? Well, here's what I believe the Lord wants to say to us, a few things. So, first thing, do you notice that in the scriptures, in Philippians 1 and 2, Paul ties internal and external unity when we're under attack to the Holy Spirit. He always does it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the only one that can give us unity when we're under attack. We need to call upon the one that gives us unity. The Holy Spirit is the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ Jesus. He's the one that gives us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He convicts us of sin. He breaks us and makes us like the one that sent him. The Holy Spirit is the glue in any church. He is the lifeblood of the local church. He is the glasses so we see ourselves and others properly. He is the empowerer. He holds us. He is the teacher of scripture. So here's the question. Are you and have you ever cried out for the unity of our church and said, Holy Spirit... Keep us together despite us. And one of the great prayers, if you would dare pray it later today, is this. Forget praying for the rest of us, pray for yourself. Holy Spirit, would you change me? Holy Spirit, would you change my mind how I think? Holy Spirit, would you change my attitudes? Holy Spirit, if my worldview, how I see the world is wrong, change it. Holy Spirit, will you come and make me like Jesus? Trust me, he'll show up and he'll do it because that's his job description on earth. The Holy Spirit has one agenda on earth to make people formed in the image of God like Jesus himself. Oh God, revive us, we pray. Really? 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 Well, if you want it, ask him, he'll come. The unity of our church is found in another sentient being, God himself, who's found in the Holy Spirit. We must understand that as more pressure mounts around us, our unity will be tested, and this church must become habitually involved in a prayer meeting in their lives, saying, Holy Spirit, keep us together. Here's the second thing. This passage is very clear that we are called, if you are a Christian, to suffer for the gospel. I would like to again read Eugene Peterson's capturing of this, his rendering. There is far more to this life than trusting in Christ. There is also suffering for him, and the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. Do you believe that? Paul, one wrote, claimed that suffering is a gift is misunderstood. I mean, history is, is littered with misunderstandings. So many Christians actually have taken this in the wrong way. They believe that suffering somehow purges them. In Roman Catholic traditions, in certain groups, they whip themselves till they bleed because they believe it's a good thing. Per- no, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is suffering for the gospel, standing for truth, holding out the love of Christ for a world that probably still doesn't want it. And what's the result? When we suffer for Christ, it can have two positive effects. It gives us assurance of salvation and allows us to relate to our Lord. There's two ways we're going to suffer as Christians if it's genuine. The first one is publicly when we stand, like I said, in a world that is hostile to truth and God, and we stand and we are mocked and we are called all sorts of fun things. But the other form of suffering, which hits home even more, is this. When we willingly, in our own personal life, choose to give up things we deeply love, and we choose to suffer because we know that Jesus has asked us to give up those things. Have you ever, when you have been tempted to go back to those things you've been saved from, those things, let's not play church. We love these things. We love certain things. That Jesus has directly told us, you may not do that. That is not living in a manner or conducting yourself worthy of the gospel. Have you ever in great times of temptation or habitual struggles, no matter your age, 16 to 80, ever said to God, you know what? I am willing, Jesus, to suffer for you by giving this up? Because it is suffering. We are committed, Paul says, to suffer for the gospel outside in the world and in our own hearts. And as the Spirit of God makes us more like Jesus, we will suffer more because Jesus will ask us to give up more and more and more we love because the things we love much of the time are not from him. Paul says, number one, ask for the Holy Spirit to build the unity in your church. Number two, would you be willing to pray to Jesus? And this is the, uh, right? I will suffer for your gospel, not by my own power, but it is my calling. And Here's the last thing. We must have church unity, not uniformity, but we must have church unity at any cost in this church. Paul would come and say, get along, C4 church. Just get along. You can't afford a civil war when you're under attack. Unity, don't you know, is connected to your joy. Unity is not uniformity, but it is unity. As another pastor preached, whatever else may happen, my friends, don't let your own selfish attitude sneak in like a thief and steal your joy and interrupt your closeness with others. Our humility is not even about rights. or servant, It's about servanthood. Here's the question. Do you serve your family? Do you serve your friends? Do you serve in this church? And some of you are saying, oh yeah, I serve every week. No, no, no. Do you serve without vain? Do you serve without selfish ambition or vain conceit? Again, hear the word of God, do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but actually to each one, looking to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. One person wrote, you want some examples of how to do this in a community? Here they are. Hold your tongue. Refuse to speak uncharitably about other Christians. Now let's just do a test. How have you talked about other Christians this week? have you talked about me? How have you talked about the elders? How have you talked about the staff? How have you talked about your connect group? How have you talked about your spouse or, or your friend who's a believer? Is it uncharitable? Selfish ambition, vain conceit. He says, cultivate a humility that comes from understanding that like Paul, we're all the chief of sinners. And so we only get in by grace. So let's give grace to another Another way of doing this is listen long and patiently so you actually understand what people are saying and you'll actually hear their needs. Refuse to consider your time or calling so valuable you can never be interrupted. Bear the burdens of one another in the Lord by both preserving their freedom and forgiving their sinful abuse of freedom when they fall. Declare God's word to fellow believers when they need to hear it and do it in love understand that your christian influence or authority whether you have a title or not in this church is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs the service paul comes and he says to the philippian church i'm sitting in jail and it's not right but i'm really excited what god's doing then he says to them guess what i know you're under attack too and it's difficult I want you to understand that this pressure that you're under is going to grow, but you can have unity during it, and do not fear, they are all going to give an account for what they're doing. And then he says, while you're under attack, and while things get more and more dark and violent at points, please hear my words, he would say, do not turn on each other. Do not turn on each other, because if you turn on each other, you are actually cannibalizing Jesus himself. We are the body of Christ. So here's how we're going to respond today. And I thought this was going to be such an easy passage this week when I opened it. This is what I want us to pray. I'd like us, as Dan and the team are going to come up behind me, but I'd like us to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. I'd like us to willingly say to Jesus we're willing to suffer for him. I think many of us who are in this church, who've done church for years, have never said out loud in a prayer to Jesus, I will suffer for your gospel. And I think we also need to pray that God would teach us The unity that he describes here, which is positioned in a humble attitude. So let's just pray. Jesus, we come before you. You're the same Jesus that filled and oversaw Paul's life. The same Jesus that loved and oversaw the church in Philippi. And you're the same Jesus that loves this church, loves Rosalind Rich. We we prayed with this before this morning and every other church in this area. And we're coming to you and saying, honestly, Jesus, tough, difficult stuff. I want to say personally in front of my family, I just... Man, I'm so far from all of this. So, a few prayers. Holy Spirit, number one, help us. Give us unity in this church. Holy Spirit, we welcome you so much. We don't want to grieve you. Come in such power that right when we're going to go off the tracks, you you show up and, and tell us straight. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd give us power as we try reaching out to a world that isn't even interested at points. Because only by your power will people be reached. But Holy Spirit, also we pray you'd give us one mind, one unity among us in Jesus' name. And we're not just praying this sort of conceptually. We're asking this, Holy Spirit, come in great power. Give personal renewal. This is personal renewal. Bring corporate revival. Bring an awakening. Come, Holy Spirit, do what you must among us. No matter the cost. Number two, if you're willing to pray this, I know some of you will not be, but if you are, pray this prayer. Are you online? This is for you too. Band behind me, this is for you also. Simple prayer. Your scripture is clear, Jesus, that you have not just called me so I get to know you, but I'm called to suffer for you. I'm really uncomfortable with this, but I'm willing. I will suffer for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. And I pray, Lord, as some of us are uttering that prayer, that you would never, ever allow us to not have the character to go with that prayer. That we would never think we're suffering for Jesus when we're actually just being mean. I mean, I really pray we would suffer rightly. And Jesus, I pray this. And lastly, we pray, out of the scriptures itself, God, I pray for my life, my family, my extended family here. Jesus, help us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Give us a humility to value other people above ourselves. Help us not to look to our own interests, but the interests of each other. Uh, Jesus, you say in your relationships with one another, we're supposed to have your mind and your attitude. So I can't preach this. You have to do this in us. Help us to obey. I pray for this church's unity as we step out to reach many. I pray that you would help us and redeem suffering so we have a joy when when we suffer at the hands of others who don't love or understand Jesus. And I pray you'd preserve our unity, convict us when we're off in the area of unity, and do whatever you must among us. We ask this in Jesus' name because it's your command and your great grace to us. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.